There is no salvation without a speaking of the gospel. Nobody is ever saved by watching somebody live. We are saved by hearing and believing the gospel. So the furnace for Elijah has been turned and turned way up. God is strengthening his servant. Verse 21, then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. One of the things that we see in Elijah's life is that Elijah has a strength of faith. He has a knowledge of God that allows him to move outside a precedent. There was no precedent for ravens feeding a person. That had never been heard of before. There's also no precedent for anyone being resurrected back to life. Never happened before. Not a word in in all of God's Word about anyone being raised back to life. Yet, that is no limitation for Elijah's faith. Elijah's faith is not limited by what God has done before. Instead, Elijah knows his God well enough It doesn't matter what God has done or never done. It doesn't matter if this has never happened. I'm going to ask for it. You know, our requests of God, fill in the blank. Our requests of God are generally too big or small. What would you say? Small. I think we instinctively sort of have this reaction that, oh, I'm asking God for too much. No. We ask God for far too little. Our requests of Him are far too small or too limited. Jesus says in Luke's Gospel that the Father is is joyful to give us the kingdom. I'm reminded of the story of uh, of C.S. Lewis and uh, and and how he puts this. He says it's like it's like a, a small child playing and making mud pies when they're two blocks from the seashore, and you're like. Well, well, they're having fun making mud pies, but the beach is right there. Wouldn't you much rather be at the beach? But the child is just sort of absorbed in making mud pies. C.S. Lewis says that's like us. They were far too satisfied with too little. We ask God for too little when He says to us, it's my desire to give you the kingdom. So Elijah prays, Lord my God, let this child's life come to Him again. Now, What he does here, immediately takes the boy, he goes and he gets alone with God and he prays this effective prayer. Remember in James, we're told, of course, that Elijah is this model for effective prayer and the effective prayer of Elijah is exemplified for us in his prayer for the drought. But if his prayer for the drought was so effective, then how much more effective is this prayer that the boy will be raised back to life? So he seeks first he seeks first the Lord. He goes to the Lord. He gives the, he asks this request in verse 22. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. So make note there of the voice that God is listening to. It's not the voice of somebody praying who understands everything about God. It's not the voice of somebody praying who thinks they've got this all figured out. It's not the voice of somebody praying with no doubt. This is a, the voice of someone who's praying, who has doubts, who's racked with, un, with non-understanding. 
who doesn't know what God's up to, who doesn't know why God has brought this about, yet those doubts do not cause Elijah to have low thoughts of God or hard thoughts of God or harsh thoughts of God. Instead, he pours out to God his doubt, his non-understanding. God listens, God hears, and God answers. Verse 23. And Elijah took, I'm sorry, verse 22, and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. Now that word life there in your translation may may be soul. The word there is literally soul and the soul of the boy came back to him. So one thing here to sort of note in passing is once again, Scripture confirms for us, it, it affirms, I should say, that we are not just souls. God created us as souls and bodies. The both of them together are who we are, are what we are. So notice how it's put here. The soul of the boy came back to the body. The soul of the boy came back to him. They're both called him. The soul is him and the body is him. Scripture identifies us, who we are, our identity, is just as much connected to our soul as our body. Both of those together are who we are. God did not make you, as sometimes we hear people say, you are not a soul that's inhabiting a body that when you're done with it, you'll chunk it in the ground and be done. That's not the way Scripture describes it to us. Scripture tells us that our bodies are an integral part of who we are. And that when this body that's been corrupted by sin is used up in a sense. It's not thrown away. It's tucked away. Awaiting a remaking, a resurrection. So when we hear uh, those people who are maybe struggling with death, we sort of hear phrases like, you know, they're, uh, I'm going to be done with this old body. I can't wait to be done with this old body and be free from it. That's not how Scripture wants us to think. Scripture wants to think of ourselves as a soul and a body together. The boy's soul has left his body. That's that's what physical death is, when the soul is separated from the body. So the boy's soul has left the body. Elijah prays for the soul to be brought back to him. Not to a corpse, not to a body, but back to him. So those that we know who are loved ones that are in Christ and they've gone on to be with the Lord, they are experiencing perfect happiness and contentment and pleasure and satisfaction, yet there is still a significant thing that they're waiting for. They are waiting for the reunification of their soul back to their body because we are not complete as soul, as bodiless souls. Those who are with the Lord now are not complete. They are experiencing happiness and pleasure, but in an incomplete sense because they are awaiting the reunion of their body, which is part of them, back together with their soul. That's just a a note in passing. But we see this, that uh, verse 22 again, the life of the child came into him again, and he revived, verse 23, and Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Notice what Elijah didn't say. Look what I did. Isn't this awesome what I just did for you? Of course, he doesn't say that. But also, he doesn't say what sometimes we can 
maybe find ourselves in the trap of saying, maybe God answers a prayer in some great, fantastic way, and we just want to be known as the person who prayed for that or believed that God would do Elijah doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say, I knew God would do this. I prayed for this and God answered my prayer. All he says is, here's your boy. See? He's alive. Elijah is content for God to get all of the credit for this. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. So he's now brought back to life. In the passage, God saves three people's lives. The boy's life obviously is saved. We're about to see in a moment that the woman's life, or specifically her eternal life, is saved. And Elijah's life also, of course, is saved. Verse 24, And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Reminds us of the words of Job, right? At the end of those 42 chapters of suffering and everything, Job says, I knew you before. Before I knew you by the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes see you. Now I know. In the context of suffering, in the context of God bringing him through suffering, he says, now I truly know you. In a similar way, the woman says, now I see. Now I know. I didn't so much doubt your words before as I didn't believe them. They didn't find resonance in my heart. Her heart was not made anew. She was not yet a child of God. She was elect, but she was not yet made new. And she says, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. So God's greatest work in the passage was not the raising of the boy. God's greatest work in the passage is the life given to the woman. And it's the continued building of Elijah, the continued work in Elijah's heart. Those are God's greatest works in the passage. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. So let's just think for just a moment of the results of this trial of faith, this testing of faith of Elijah. The woman who was born in a pagan land with no hope of knowing the Lord. Everybody she knew was a Baal worshiper. God sent His servant a hundred miles to find her because she was a lost sheep. And when Elijah found her, immediately she was saved. No. Elijah comes to her and look what has to happen. There's this act of obedience. There's this willingness to receive the words of Elijah. There's the taking in to her home. There's the perpetual miracle of the flour and the oil. And all this has been going on about a year. And so every day she literally eats a miracle. And yet she's still not converted. Her heart is being softened. She's being conditioned. When this tragedy touches her life, the first thing she thinks of is, this is my sin revisiting me. She's under conviction from the Holy Spirit. God is working upon her heart. But then another thing has to take place. She watches Elijah live in her own home. Home. The passage makes it clear Elijah's room is upstairs. His own bed is upstairs. He lives with her. She sees every day how Elijah deals with the frustration of all the doubt around him, of the struggle of the drought, of the difficulty of seeing men and women suffer because of their own disobedience and the drought that God has called upon them. 
The difficulty of him being maligned and mistrusted in the society, she sees Elijah, so to speak, with his hair down. She sees him at the end of the day when all of his defenses are tired and it's the real, true Elijah. You know, the most difficult person to have a consistent witness to is the person you live with. We all know that to be true, right? The person you live with sees the ugliest parts of you and the most difficult people to have consistent witnesses to are those who live with you. She lives with Elijah and she has seen the consistent witness of this man's heart. Reminds us of the witness to the Thessalonians when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. Paul says, you know, you watched us. You watched us live and you saw what kind of men we were. So their testimony of life validated the words that they spoke. Their testimony was validation for that. So also with Elijah, but also something else. Notice what Paul says, because our gospel came to you not only in word. So the the widow says to Elijah, she says this, now I know that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So what word was in Elijah's mouth that she now knows is true? Was it the word about the drought? She already knew that was true. Nothing could be more obvious than that. Was it the word about the flour and the oil? She knew that was true because every day she dipped it out and it was still there. The only thing she could be talking about is the word about God. Elijah has talked to her about God is her creator. He is her maker. He made her in his image. Yet she has chosen sin. She has chosen false gods. She's chosen to worship herself. And yet God has not given up on her. He, he, he will send his Messiah. Elijah lives before Jesus. So his faith is in the Messiah that is coming. And she, he has told this to her and explained this to her. That is what she's now saying. I now believe. Paul says, our gospel came to you with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it came to you with the gospel words that we spoke. And it came to you with our life example that validated the words that we spoke. In the same way, the testimony has come to the widow, the power of the Holy Spirit, flower, oil, now, sun raised back to life. The testimony of Elijah's life that backs up the words he spoke and the words that he has spoken to her of the gospel. There is no salvation without a speaking of the gospel. Sometimes I think we can sort of lull ourselves into thinking that people will see the example of our life and be convicted and saved. Nobody is ever saved by watching somebody live. We are saved by hearing and believing the gospel And the gospel comes to us in words that must be spoken. So sometimes I think we give ourselves an easy way out because we feel the discomfort of actually speaking the words of the gospel. And we say, well, my life is my testimony. Well, that's great. Your life can validate the words that you profess, but your life cannot articulate the gospel without words. There's a saying, I know you've heard it, uh, I've, I've seen it attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, I've seen it attributed to uh, 
Mother Teresa, it goes like this. Preach the gospel whenever you can and when necessary, use words. Clever, very tweetable, not true. Because you cannot preach the gospel without words. J.D. Greer puts it this way. Preaching the gospel without words is like giving somebody your telephone number without using digits. You can't do it. Because your telephone number is digits. Just like the gospel is words. It is the words that tell us of our sinful condition, of our hopelessness, and God's work to save us. So the woman doesn't say, I see the flower jar, I see the oil, I see my son risen to life, and I've watched you live, Elijah, so I now believe. She says, now I know. All these things have validated what you said. They've affirmed what you said. Now I know that what you said is true. And she's brought from death into life. One last thing, we'll finish on this. We have to recognize the parallel here. Because there is an instance in Jesus' life that is remarkably similar. From Luke chapter 7, the raising of another widow's son back to life. So you don't have to turn here, but Luke 7 verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, also a Gentile town, just like Zarephath. And His disciples and a great crowd went with Him. And as He drew near to the gate of the town, Elijah meets the widow at the gate. Jesus meets the widow at the gate. As He drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And the mother was a widow. She was a widow. So there's a widow with one son who has died. For Elijah, there's a widow there's one with one son who has died. And the Lord saw her and He had compassion on her, just like Elijah has great compassion on the widow. And He said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the bier, which was the, the coffin, and the bearer stood still. So in both instances, Jesus and Elijah both touch an unclean thing. The unclean thing is a dead body. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. In both instances, Elijah gave the boy to his mother. Jesus gave the, the man to his, to his mother. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited His people. Both instances, the miracle results in people being convicted and believing. The similarities are remarkable. Gentile town, widow with one son, widow dies. Uh, Elijah and Jesus, both raised back to dead, return the boy to the mother, and people believe. But there's one difference. In the Elijah story, Elijah calls out and pleads to God. God, let life come back to this boy. In the Jesus story, Jesus appeals to no one. Jesus doesn't ask the Father to raise this boy. Jesus says in Himself, I have the authority. I am the resurrection and the life. And by my word, by my authority, this man will be raised back to life. Elijah can speak words to the Father, pleading that the Father would return and restore life to this boy only because Jesus 
mediates his prayer. Even though this takes place before Jesus' incarnation and before Jesus' atonement, Jesus is still doing that work of mediation. And Elijah can call out to his father because Jesus goes between the two. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus says, I will show you the same instance, the same story, the same thing. Only that power is in me. For I am the resurrection and I am the life. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.